The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Father, I wanted to bring up tonight a topic that uh, has actually been been brought up to me on on multiple occasions now from uh, various... emails that we've received and uh, just general comments from our viewers. And if I could kind of paraphrase uh, this question, it goes something like this. If you look at the state of uh, the, the world today, how bad things are, uh, you know, we constantly talk about on, on this show all, all of the, uh, the terrible manifold evils that we see in the world today. How bad do things have to get before we uh, take some kind of action? For example, taking up arms against our own government or governments in, in other countries. How bad do things have to get before we actually do something about it? Well, if you're talking about taking, we ourselves taking up arms against governments of other countries, as you mentioned, uh, well, that's basically a declaration of war, I guess, right? That is the province of Congress, the Congress of the United States of America, right? Um, there are a, a matter of principles involved in, in fighting a just war. Can private citizens declare war on a foreign government? Uh, that topic really has not been covered in moral theology, at least not the moral theology that I've heard. Uh, a war is generally, uh, uh, you know, conflict between states, uh, societies, uh, and uh, so individuals declaring war on foreign governments is not a province I generally get into. Uh, if we're talking about insurrection within a country, any country, um, again, you know, there are principles that are laid down by St. Thomas Aquinas and other uh, theologians, doctors of the church, who speak of that and what would be necessary to do that. Is it ever permitted? Yes, there are uh, circumstances that would permit that to be done. Uh, they are extreme circumstances, of course, just as declaring war. In fact, the circumstances um, of, uh, you know, leading, leading an insurrection against uh, um Government officials, the, the 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 government of a country, uh, would even be perhaps more more rigid, more demanding in a sense, um, because of the terrible evils involved. Uh, it would involve basically um, civil war and uh, terrible suffering and destruction, possibly risking even the existence existence of the nation itself. So one would have to be extremely, extremely uh, careful. Um, the question really would be, who would, who would be able to give the, an authoritative answer to that question in a particular cir- circumstance, that yes, this is justified. 
There are many people in our own country today, in fact, of all persuasions, who um, <clears throat> threaten insurrection of one kind or another. They're following various leaders who decided that uh, uh, they can undertake armed revolt, um, try to create uh, chaos in the social order, which they hope will lead to, to general revolution within the country. Um, actually, for anyone who would call himself Christian, he wouldn't be looking for revolution. He'd be actually resisting what he considered to be a revolution and were, uh, fighting for a restoration of what was good and right, uh, something that had been attacked or undermined by usurpers who did not either did not have any right to rule in the first place, uh, or uh, if they had, they had lost the rule by violating uh, their oaths uh, of allegiance, for example, to the Constitution of the United States of America and so on. But again, uh, what private citizen is in a position to make that judgment that would uh, wreak such havoc and do so much damage? <clears throat> and generally speaking, such insurrection would be the last resort I mean, there are things that we as Catholics can and should be doing and could and should have been doing all along. And uh, if we haven't been doing those things to prevent our country from uh, getting into the, the, the terrible situation it's in, if we haven't been doing those things all along, then what makes us think, what would make us think that, well, we failed all along to live up to our Catholic faith, and um, and professing our faith, and uh, uh, we've watched, you know, our government be taken over by um, homicidal <laughs> um, abortionists, whatever, and we've let this happen. So what makes us think that we're going to be making the right decisions when it comes to armed insurrection? So we should have a great deal of misgivings about our own judgment of these matters because uh, we have, in, in, in a sense, we are so much responsible for the failure and the circumstances that we're in right now. So the first step for us would be to reform ourselves and pray, as Our Lady said. Uh, Our Lady said at Fatima that what happens would be the just chastisement of God as a result of our sins. And so the first step we should take uh, is stop sinning. And um, the Cristeros, for example, in Mexico, uh, were Catholics who were pushed to the wall by the Marxist government under Callez. Uh, they were trying to export uh, Marxist socialist communism into Mexico from, from Russia. And um, revolutionaries there took over the government in the 1920s and 1930s, and the Cristeros uh, rose up to resist, but they had no choice because they were, they were being openly persecuted and, uh, their families, their churches, uh, they were under attack from, uh, radical revolutionary intruders, uh, who wanted to transform the country into a socialist Marxist state, uh, anti-God, certainly anti-family. So, uh, but their first agenda was to purify themselves and uh, to confess their sins and to adopt a very Catholic lifestyle. That's where they began. 
And um, that's where, you know, any, uh, any reform we have in mind has to begin with the individual, mm -hmm. has to begin with ourselves. Well, Father, let me write a particular case by you because, you know, you mentioned a, a serious, um, serious reason or, uh, or you also said the, the usurpers. Well, what about the, uh, the case of the abortion clinics today? Um, not that, that any of our, our viewers justify this, but could you explain why would it not be justifiable for, uh, for say, someone to take up uh, arms against a, an abortion clinic? Why could we not... Uh, say physically destroy an abortion clinic. I mean, here we have the most. There are those who have done that, Tom. What good have they done? What have they accomplished? Have they prevented the? What good have they done? Have the abortion it? clinic was rebuilt. It was bombed. Uh, it was rebuilt, and uh, it increases public sympathy for the abortionists who use that okay. to show. Um, and uh, falsely, they use it falsely, but uh, they do. They abuse it, but they do abuse it to further their cause. And uh, so, I mean, there are those who have taken that route, and what, what good have they possibly done? What good have any of them done about that? Um, so, um, again, you know, I, I just don't see that as an effective way of resisting abortion. Um, as long as we have um, legislators uh, in control of our houses of Congress, well, Congress and the Senate, of course, are two houses, um, then uh, who are voting for these things, as long as we have in our state legislatures such um, monsters as voted in the New York law and then cheered themselves for abortion up to death, up to, well, abortion, <laughs> I should say abortion up to birth, right, which is often death for the children, um, then, uh, you know, one could destroy any number of individual abortion clinics and uh, not even make a dent in the evil. Okay. Um, first of all, um, we need the Maccabees spirit, right? But the Maccabees started with themselves. They, they sanctified their, their consecration uh, to God, they said, but I and my house, we will, we will honor the Lord. That's what, uh, Maccabeus said. So, uh, that's where they have to start. And, um, they need a spiritual power. Our Blessed Mother made it very clear that this is what is necessary. And this is the root of the problem. Sin. That's where we have to, uh, we have to, um, stop the devil's revolution because sin is all part of his revolution we have to fight for the restoration and the restoration is god's order in things the order of god's creation and the order of the redemption right and that is to restore all things in christ as pope Pius the 11th and pope Pius the, the uh, pope Pius the 10th you know demanded we we have to make that restoration in christ so um, it would be all too um, simple if salvation came out of the barrel of a gun, but it doesn't. Um, it, they, they can be very useful weapons against evil people who want to do evil things. Uh, the church has always recognized that. Um, one is entitled to use the force necessary to defend oneself and to protect one's family and one's country. 
and that involves weaponry. But the fact is, we're talking about an evil that is so pervasive in this country that uh, no bullets and bombs are going to solve this problem. The problem is sin, and that has to be remedied. And it can be remedied only by grace, so we have to pray. Our Blessed Mother told us exactly what the battle plan is at Fatima, and we have to implement that before we start talking about our own plans of how we're going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Father, I'd like to get into another uh, couple emails, uh, just a, a change of topic here. Uh, this viewer asks why the Novus Ordo Church changed the Sundays after Pentecost to the Sundays of ordinary time. So I ask, what is, what is ordinary time? It is nothing. It is nonsense. It is a complete... Uh, negation of the whole idea of the liturgical year in which we are reliving um, the the life of Christ, the life of the church. We're reliving from the fall of Adam and Eve, right? And the promise of the Redeemer through Advent, the anticipation of the coming of the Redeemer. Soon, in a matter of hours, we'll be celebrating uh, Christmas, Christmas Day itself. We celebrate our Lord's birth. For 40 days after that, we celebrate uh, the Christmas tide, the Christmas season, until February 2nd. And uh, then we begin to uh, work our way through Septuagesima, Sexagesima, Quinquagesima toward Lent itself. 40 days, uh, uh, commemorating our Lord's 40 days in the desert, right? And uh, we then uh, commemorate, of course, Holy Week and uh, what we call Passion Tide with its Holy Week, the Triduum, uh, the death of our Lord, His resurrection, His uh, ascension into heaven, Pentecost, and then the Sundays after Pentecost, taking us again finally to a new Advent, right? The first Sunday of Advent is, an, is, is the new church year. That's, that's, that's New Year's Day for the church, the first Sunday of Advent. Because that entire liturgical cycle begins then and carries us throughout the entire year. And the nexus, of course, is the gospel for the last Sunday after Pentecost and the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent, talking about the coming of our Lord to judge mankind at the end of the world. Both gospels, back to back, Sunday to Sunday. <coughs> this is liturgical year. The the uh, just dropping uh, of the Sundays after Pentecost and, re- and replacing the word even uh, Pentecost with ordinary time is meaningless. In terms of the Catholic liturgy, it is meaningless. There's no such thing as ordinary time in, in a liturgical year. Uh, and uh, if the counterpoint to that is extraordinary time, uh, again, you know, it, it doesn't specify any sacred event mm-hmm. upon which the, uh, the Sundays focus and on which the, that, that cycle of history turns, that the moment of history turns. So, um, again, like the Novus Ordo, it is meant to, um, as it were, to um, purge the liturgy of its real meaning. And the use of that terminology is one example of that. Mm-hmm. Purging of the real meaning of a liturgical year, Sundays after Pentecost. And it seems as well that if you just have 
ordinary time that that there's there's nothing that the church is celebrating there's nothing no uh no it's great, like a vacuum yeah i mean it kind of reminds you of a, a modernist novus ordo church where they uh you know removed all, all of the statues any uh mm-hmm. any vestige of any anything religious or spiritual sure that's right so uh okay well father let's move on to another email then what are we to say to those modernists and liberals who simply write off the biblical teachings and passages that they do not like by saying that those passages were intended only for that specific time or that specific audience. How would you respond to someone who said something like that? Well, they don't believe. They, they have no faith. Uh, sacred scripture is divine revelation. It, it is written by definition, scripture, written revelation of God. And uh, that revelation of God leads up to our Lord Jesus Christ and reaches its zenith in him. And uh, all that the apostles and the evangelists uh, after, after our Lord wrote were about our Lord and what he taught. And so if they want to say that our Lord was just speaking to those of his time but not speaking to those of our time, then they are quintessential modest, modernists. That's the whole point of modernism is that, uh, you know, Jesus had his religious experience, his faith experience that he's the son of God. He spoke to the people of his time. But now mankind has moved beyond him, and we have our own faith experience today. And uh, it doesn't necessarily coincide with his. It's, it's grown beyond Jesus, Jesus' own faith experience. We take our cue from him. We want to be in contact with him. But after all, the faith experience of mankind has involved, evolved beyond, beyond that point. Um, that's exactly what modernism uh, says, and that's why it is so evil. It is a negation. It is a, uh, and no wonder St. Pius X said it's the synthesis of all heresies, ultimate leads to apostasy. That's the ultimate goal of modernism, to, to uh, accomplish apostasy so that one doesn't even, uh, the, the very meaning of the word faith is totally changed. Uh, faith is what you're experiencing of the divine. Faith is what I'm experiencing of the divine. That's our faith. Not the same experience either. But that is what they mean by faith. And it doesn't necessarily coincide with Jesus' uh, experience of the divine. Um, But nonetheless, Tom, uh, you know, I I think of, when you mention this, I think of the Diamond Brothers, who are like quintessential modernists in that regard. Because when they talk about, you know, the denial of baptism of desire and baptism of blood, and you, you point out to them, well, you know, our Lord also said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. So that sounds very absolute, but they don't claim that you have to receive Holy Communion to save your soul, only that you be baptized. And the way they get around that is to do exactly what the modernists do. They say, well, when Jesus said this, he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life anyway. And our Lord was just talking to those people who were in front of him at the time, the people who could, who could hear him at the synagogue in Capernaum, but he wasn't referring to all other people who would come afterwards. So only they had to receive the Eucharist in order to be saved, but no one who afterwards had to receive the Holy Eucharist in Holy Communion to be saved. And uh, I mean, that's that's a, a really blatant example of the modernist methodology, uh, limiting our Lord's words to just those who were there at the time and living under those circumstances. It was all culturally 
uh, connected and and limited to the the, 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 the local culture of that time. Mm-hmm. But Father, what's the correct understanding of this? Because it seems that uh, there must be some kind of vestige of, of truth to this, you know, because Moses, he, the, the books of the Bible that he wrote, he wrote them for his people in a way that they would understand. The The book of the apocalypse was, was written for the people living in the end time so that they would understand that. So were not the, the books of the Bible written, uh, you know, in, in the well, language? Well, the books of Moses were written for people of all times. And the book of the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, they call it now, was written for people of all times, not just for the people living in the end times. Um, are there cultural uh, elements? Of course there are. There are cultural element, elements expressed in the Gospels by the evangelists. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the point that is made, that doesn't mean the point that is made uh, refers only to that particular culture. You know, when our Lord says, um, uh, you know, why do you do, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command of you? He wasn't just complaining about the, the, um, fact that there were people who would refer to him as Lord and then do as they pleased, thinking that they were saved just because they called him Lord, but they didn't have to obey his commands. Our Lord wasn't just commanding that of those people at that time. He wasn't just complaining about their attitude. People of all time, uh, all times and places throughout the world, and I'm talking about those who are baptized, uh, have the same attitude. I mean, we have that attitude today in Protestantism. Uh, you're saved by faith alone. You don't have to obey the commandments to be saved, just believe to be saved. Call Jesus Lord, mean it, even though you don't follow his commandments, do as he says, you're still saved. I mean, so this is a, a universal application. It applies to everyone of the human race, wherever he lives, whenever he lives. So it is with the revelation of God. Um, yes, there are going to be, there are going to be cultural elements by, as, as a mode of expression and examples that are given. Our Lord talked often in the gospel about, (coughs) about the sheep and the shepherd. Well, we don't have a lot of sheep and shepherds running around our neighborhoods, but we can still understand the point, and the point is universal. Uh, so the modernists are wrong. They just want to uh, be free of uh, to, to establish their own religion and rewrite faith according to their own per- particular whims. Um, okay. Uh, well, Father, that sounds a lot like Protestants, and you, you mentioned them. We have a question. Uh, could you address the concept of Protestant sacraments, and if it is possible for any Protestant sacraments to be valid? No. Well, let, let me put it this way, Tom. Um, can Protestants validly baptize? They can. Okay, they can be validly baptized if they use the correct matter and form and have the right intention. What does this mean? Okay. Well, the matter, we know what that is. It is water, right? Natural water. And it has to be moving, right? Um, uh, flowing waters, as it were. And uh, one can be immersed, one can uh, have the water poured over them, that's called infusion, or one, even by sprinkling the water, as long as the water is running, you know, over the body, touching the skin, uh, the significance of it is still there. This, what it signifies is cleansing of the soul. And the form is the statement that says what this means. I mean, there are many times we... Uh, 
you know, we get in the shower and turn on the shower and water is running over us, we're not being baptized. <laughs> Uh, but the form, the statement of the significance of pouring this water or immersing this person, whatever, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Uh, that has to be joined with the, with the, uh, action, with the matter applied to give us the outward sign, which is the very definition of a sacrament, an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. And uh, one has to have at least the intention to do what the church does uh, for baptism. That's unique for baptism. So God has made baptism very available to people so that as long as one pours the water or immerses one in the water and, um, you know, pronounces the words stating the meaning of what that action is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, with the intention of doing it, at least what the church does, no contrary intention, then there's a valid baptism, okay? But um, when you ask, do Protestants have valid sacraments, or can Protestant sacraments be valid, insofar as they are Protestant sacraments, uh, that's another issue. Um, there, there's really no such thing as a Protestant sacrament. Protestants do not believe in sacraments as Catholics do. Uh, if you were to ask a Protestant, what does baptism do? What does the Eucharist do? Let's say they believe in those two sacraments, okay? They've rejected, by and large, the rest of them. But even the ones they keep, they have completely redefined. Their idea is, well, you're saved by faith, so baptism is meant to increase and deepen and confirm your faith that you're saved. It actually does not give you grace. It merely uh, is a, 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 uh, an opportunity for you to renew your faith and to intensify your faith and your confidence that you are saved. And the Eucharist the same way. The Eucharist is not actually a sacrament which gives the grace of God or through which God gives his grace to you. It is, again, a means for you to increase your confidence uh, that you are saved by your faith that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. That's a total redefinition. That's the Protestant idea of sacrament. And so, unto itself, no, those sacraments have no power whatsoever. <coughs> uh, they're merely um, exercises to... Uh, put into practice their fundamental principle that you're saved by faith alone and increase that confidence you have that you are saved. Um, so, uh, with regard to the Eucharist, of course, I mean, uh, the consecration of the body and blood of Christ, they do not believe in that. They have explicitly rejected the idea of the real presence. Luther himself did not explicitly, he, he believed in impanation, for example that Christ somehow moves in and, and kind of coexists with the, with the bread and conceivably with the wine, too, um, and that somehow one is receiving Jesus when one receives that in some spiritual way. Um, but, again, that is not in any, way, by in any way, shape, or form the Catholic sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, right? Again, it is just meant to excite your confidence that you are saved by your faith. 
So, um, uh, you know, one has to be uh, very clear on the fact that si the, the modernists as well as the Protestants have redefined re the word sacrament. And they use the word sacrament, but they don't mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. Father, we have a, a question about a, uh, a modern, modernist sacrament. Uh, it's from a viewer who says that they were recently at a Novus Ordo wedding, and during the exchange of vows, the part which says, death unto death do us part, uh, that part was omitted uh, from mm -hmm. the vows. And I said something else was said in its place. But is that mm -hmm. common novus ordo practice to omit that, that line unto death to us part? Uh, they say that um, the priest did allude to that idea of unto death to us part in his sermon, uh, but it, it wasn't ex exactly explicit in the, the vows that the, the couple took. So is that common practice of novus ordo? Well, I don't that? know if it's common practice, but it might as well be. With all of the marriage annulments, thousands and thousands of marriage annulments, they're giving out each year to their own people, you know, to people who are married by their own priests in their own churches. Um, it's clear they do not believe in the indissolubility of marriage. Uh, remember when a few years ago Francis answered one of his own priests in Rome uh, saying that people just don't understand a permanent commitment this time. Uh, at this time in the world's history, young people don't have that concept. so. They don't really, you know, make the marriage vows for life. And the priest said, well, what can we do? And Francis said, I don't know, uh, to remedy that. But his point was to, um, to justify all the marriage annulments that they were giving, saying that the vast majority, this is what he said, the vast majority of the marriages done by their own priests are invalid marriages. And that's the justification for have, they have for annulling them. Of course, the question is, why are they doing them if they know they're valid, invalid in the first place? What a mockery that is. But you know, Tom, the, when you look at the way the Novus Ordo uh, views its own, its own marriages, um, the, the, the people who are making their vows, let's uh, have the example that's set for them by the clergy and by the hierarchy of the Novus Ordo that uh, they'll annul marriages for reasons that the church would never, would never have accepted before. The Catholic Church would never accept, ever. And so they realize that those words, until death to us part, are a complete fiction. And so in this case, that our writer mentioned, they evidently just decided to dispense with them, which is a matter of honesty, I guess. They, they do not intend to get married for life. And one priest was explaining that when they, and this was at a wedding, understand, that when they say until death do us part, what they really mean is until the death of our love for each other. Oh, wow. And then we're no longer married. So as long as we love each other, we're married. When one of us no longer loves the other one, that's the end of the marriage. Um, so, you know, if people get married, well, let me put it this way. If people pretend to get married, but they do not intend for the marriage to last as long as they both live. Their vows are null and void. There is no marriage. There is no marriage. And um, in order for a married couple to, in order for a couple to marry validly, right, they have to really intend to be each other's husband and wife with all of the obligations and rights involved with that as long as they both live. Anything less than that, there's no marriage at all. Which makes it even more ridiculous that Francis is telling the Society of St. Pius X that and now, for their marriages, they should contact the local 
um, chancery office and see if the bishop wants to send a novus ordo priest to witness the vows. That is ridiculous because Francis says most of their marriages are invalid anyway. What is even more ridiculous than that is the Society of St. Pius X says, okay. That's really ridiculous. And I just came across a case uh, just in the last few days of a, mar a couple who were being instructed, prepared for marriage by a P Pius X priest and his Pius X, St. Pius X chapel, who were ex they were getting the uh, explanation as to why we cannot be affiliated with the Novus Ordo, why we're here in our own chapel, having our own traditional mass, and we're not part of the Novus Ordo. And then, all of a sudden, the priest tells him, now you have to apply to the chancery office and ask the bishop for permission to go ahead and see if he wants to send a, a novus ordo priest into our church to witness your vows. Well, no wonder these people were very confused uh, as to how that word was could be possibly reconciled with everything he had told them before about why we're traditional Catholics and we reject the novus ordo. Um, that is the 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 ultimate uh, absurdity, really, and of course, it appears because, as Father Johnson said recently, by the way, in that I, I did a little commentary on Father Johnson's article, Father Michael Johnson's article, I think his name was Michael, uh, and I said that it was Pliny who said Carthago uh, delende est. It was actually Cato. Uh, so I had a lapse of uh, brain cells there, but in any case, um, but he said that that Vatican, that the Society of Saint Pius X had gone soft. They had gone soft on Vatican II, and since then I've read a, a, another article or two by priests in the Society of Saint Pius X who have echoed that statement that this that the the SSPX the FSSPX. Mm -hmm has gone soft on Vatican II. And if they have done so, it is because they are looking uh, for preferment within the Novus Ordo, evidently. I can't explain it any other way. <coughs> so, um, you know, if they're changing the marriage vows, well, they're just changing them to reflect the reality of the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Father, I had an, uh, another article in front of me that I, I wanted to get into just just briefly. I thought this was rather astounding and uh, worthy of your comment. The uh, title here is uh, Francis asked football manager not to make sign of the cross. Uh, it talks about the manager of Italy's national football team, and uh, he says that he was a lifelong Catholic. Uh, his his life. He has a quote here. He says, "My life was school, house, and parish." And uh, they uh, apparently they were speaking of the sign of the cross. A reporter, you know, kind of mentioned how, how so many uh, players will make the sign of the cross. And uh, there's a quote here from this manager. He says, I used to do that too, you know, hoping nothing happened during the game. Then we went to the Pope. Pope Francis said, why are you making the sign of the cross? Don't you have other thoughts in this moment? So since that time, I don't do it anymore. I don't want the Pope to get angry. You think about that, Father, the, the Pope Francis uh, getting angry about uh, one of his Catholics making the sign of the cross. I think the man is an enormous scandal. And again, I mean, anyone who still is under the illusion that this man ever had the Catholic faith is going to have to face reality that Francis never had the Catholic faith in the first place. He was a revolutionary from, from the womb, I think, uh, raised to be such also. 
Uh, he, he was raised an ecumenist and not a Catholic. Now, um, I mean, he himself talks about how he would make a mockery of the Mass, even in the old days when he was serving the traditional Mass, how he used to actually try to trip up the priest, uh, even as he, Francis, was serving the Mass. So the man has had nothing but contempt for the faith and for our Lord, no matter how piously he may, he may uh, bloviate at times. He never, he doesn't have any, any love for the Catholic faith or for our Lord himself or for the church, the Catholic church. Um, he shows his contempt for it in every way he can. This is one example. Here you have the Italy's national team, soccer team, and, uh, about to play a game or in the midst of the game, uh, players coming into leaving, uh, the field, entering the field, make the sign of the cross. Including the uh, the manager of the team. What's his name? Does he give you uh, Roberto Mancini? Yeah. Okay. And uh, you know this this man is saying uh, that he's making that across so that nothing happens during the game. He means nothing bad. No injuries. No you know bad things happen. Um, uh, and uh, so it's it's a it's a matter of devotion. It's not a matter of superstition. It's a matter of devotion. And, uh, and it is a profession of faith. It certainly is a profession of faith. And Francis um, basically pressures them not to do that. And so they give it up. Now, uh, I don't think that one has to uh, explain why this is wrong. Uh, anyone who needs it explained to him why this is wrong, well, as they say, um, if 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 it, you have to explain it, it's impossible to explain it to some people. <laughs> but uh, uh, clearly, um, it is it is emblematic of Francis to suppress expressions of true Catholic faith. I mean, look at what he just look at the message he just delivered to the members of the Curia. I mean, his own basically, I guess uh, we we would call him. Uh, cabinet department, you know, by which he governs. Uh, he's disbanding them anyway. He's already marked them for death. He's got his council of nine, down to six now, I believe, uh, led by Maradiaga, who is uh, uh, the evil genius, I'm afraid, behind this whole thing. And um, and so Francis has made it very clear he's going to be disbanding or completely reconfiguring, recreating the curial offices of the church and uh, of his church. And he, he takes the Christmas message of December 21st, the feast of Thomas the Apostle, doubting Thomas, of course, uh, seems very appropriate for him. And he delivers this, this message to these uh, members of the Curia that they should embrace change because change is coming. And he goes through at some length talking about the changes as he's going to make in their own Curia. He's completely inverting it, subverting it, per perverting it to match his new evangelism approach for his so-called missionary church, right? He says that the church has lost its prestige. It is no longer a you know, the, the uh, major part of defining the culture. Well, of course, I mean, after the modernists have done the damage, Francis was very successful. He's telling them that. He says, we, we need a new approach. <laughs> we need a new concept. We need a new paradigm. 
we, we have to get a new model. I mean, he, he basically is saying that we have to re- basically recreate everything, uh, refashion everything. And he goes through talking about how, um, and condemning rigidity, 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 rigidity over and over again. And all he means by that is the traditional faith. Mm-hmm. He, he means by that Catholic, well, the Catholic Church has received from our Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles magisterial authority to teach. That's what magisterium means, teaching authority. And that is Christ's teaching authority whom he invested in the apostles and which they conveyed to the Catholic Church throughout the generations. And uh, Francis uh, denies all of that. He wants to des- destroy all of that, that very concept. Um, the church's teaching authority is infallibly uh, concerning matters of faith and morals, okay? Faith, what is to be believed, and morals, what is to be done, what is right, what is wrong. The church is infallible in pronouncing on these through her ordinary magisterium and her extraordinary magisterium. And the ordinary magisterium is actually the bedrock. That's like the foundation. That's the teaching of the church throughout the whole world, day by day by day, creed by creed, catechism by catechism. That's the ordinary magisterium. It's called ordinary for a reason. Because that is the continuous, constant teaching of the church throughout the ages. And then you have the extraordinary magisterium, which is exercised by ecumenical councils and the popes, speaking uh, well, Pope speaking ex cathedra, and, and to, to address specific questions of faith or specific questions of morals, or even discipline, which involves morals. It could involve, for example, the validity of the sacraments and so on, what is necessary. For example, when Pope Pius XII issued Sacramentum Ordinis in 1947, there was a motu proprio, but he invoked the supreme apostolic authority of St. Peter and St. Paul and so on. He, he was very, very definite in making that statement, so it was clear to, considered to be ex cathedra and therefore uh, uh, infallible. And one might argue, well, that was a matter of discipline, the discipline of the sacraments regarding the matter and form necessary for the sacrament of holy orders to ordain deacons and priests and consecrate bishops. So the church has this magisterial authority. Now Francis condemns that as rigidity, holding to that magisterium authority, pronouncing it matters of doctrine. Doctrine to Francis is anathema because doctrine does not change. Dogma is fixed, it's truth. It does not change. And Francis insists that everything must change. Everything must change. The church's teaching must change. He's given us this example in his apostolic exhortations. He gave us that in his, in his own teaching on the death penalty and so on, rejecting the, um, the authority of the ordinary magisterium of the Catholic Church. Um, he is most definitely rejecting the idea of a rigid doctrine which does not change because it is true now and forever. Uh, the same with moral principle. He says, now we're discovering new moralities. I've got a new morality that fits our times, that is suitable to modern man. Okay, So we have to basically abandon the old moral principles, which means there are no moral principles. Uh, if you abandon old principles and adopt new principles, there are no principles. So that's what the dubia were all about. You know, the moral principles that Francis refused to answer. 
because the the cardinals that were asking the questions were asking the right questions essentially and the answers francis didn't want to give he already had given the answers essentially in his amoris laetitia and uh they wanted him to come out and just you know state well you know yes or no is is, is this what you're saying yes that's what he was saying okay that's what he was saying and uh, he obviously didn't feel it was necessary to answer their questions because it is what it is, right? Uh, and everyone knows it. And then Francis goes on to say, well, this is my magisterial teaching to the bishops, uh, to the Novus Ordo bishops of Brazil and Argentina. This is what he writes, you know. So um, this, is, this is the idea of Francis's new magisterium. Uh, his teaching authority has no more authority than Francis, poor little Francis, all by himself. That's Francis's teaching authority. Whatever he decides at any given moment, that's magisterium. And that's how modernists are. Because whatever they're experiencing at the moment, whatever they think is important to say at the moment, that's magisterium. Uh, that is the work of the Holy Ghost. But remember now, Francis is a charismatic, right? And he's a Pentecostalist, which means that they believe the Spirit is constantly inspiring, 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 virtually every thought you have, right? Every sentiment, every feeling, you know, you've got the Spirit, and the Spirit is, is speaking through you and uh, communicating through you. Um, it's almost to the point of being like a seance with some of these people, you know? And um, it trivializes the work of the Holy Ghost. But Francis is one of these charismatic types. And so he really does believe that whatever he says is magisterial. It's magisterial. He's invoking the teaching authority of Jesus Christ in whatever he says. This is what modernism is. This is what modernism does. So, uh, you know, we have this problem with... Uh, with the conservative Novus Ordo people who are letting this change their very concept of what the papacy is. And Francis is actually changing their understanding of the Catholic faith. Even the conservative Novus Ordo people who, who are denouncing what he's doing are actually accepting the fact that, well, you know, this is what a Pope can do this. A Pope can do these things. And he is changing the, the, uh, the the yard markers he's changing the 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 whole well they like to use the word paradigm at least that was in vogue at one time he's changing their concept of the papacy according to him he's redefining it by what he does so even the conservative novus ordo types who say well we're being faithful to catholic tradition they're not they're letting francis dictate to them a new concept of the pre of the of the, of the papacy and uh, ultimately, it will lead them to disaster. So, um, but they're they're going to come into conflict. They're they're going to come into uh, internal contradictions in their beliefs. He's going to force them into that. And and ultimately, I think even the conservative Novus Ordo people are going to lose their faith and lose their lose their um, bearings, as it were. You know. So, uh, but again, Our Lady did talk about a diabolical disorientation and. I'm afraid we see that even the conservative Novus Ordos, who refuse to abandon the evil of Vatican II and its aftermath and the Novus Ordo. Uh, you know, not just the Mass, but all their new sacraments. One has to return to the traditional Catholic faith. For the sake of his own faith, one has to return to practice the traditional Catholic faith in the traditional Mass, traditional sacraments, and practice the traditional faith in its integrity. 
and not not have some kind of a hybrid between traditional practice and Novus Ordo uh, corruption. That is, that is possibly the worst corruption of all. So anyway, Tom, this is, uh, this is the very essence of modernism, you know, to make it up as they go along. And Francis is uh, the, prime, uh, the prime modernist. Father, let's, uh, let's end with that. I know you have a busy schedule now that the uh, Christmas season is upon us. So thanks well, for we should say something about Christmas yeah. here. I mean, I, I'm, you know, we're talking about Francis making this uh, address to the Curia. And he starts out and says some nice things, okay. Um, but then he goes into this revolutionary monologue about how we're going to change everything. And you have to be with the program. <laughs> overcome your rigidity of your of faith and morals and, and follow me. Um, so we know that, in fact, the Son of God did become man and that there is that divine person of God's own Son, eternal and infinite God, who comes to us in the flesh and who speaks to us and teaches us and actually lays down his life for us on the cross and gives his life for us, as I mentioned, in order to give his life to us through justification and sanctifying grace to sanctify the human soul. This is unspeakably wonderful. It is unimaginably wonderful. And that it, that it shows the, the, the greatness of the love of God, that God, God loves with the, the divine will. He loves us with the divine will. And uh, if we only appreciated the significance of that love and um, put away the things of the world that are so cheap and irrelevant and give up the sinful things that we rejoice in and be like our Blessed Mother who found her joy purely in the love of God, purely and simply in the will of God. Doing His will was her joy. Uh, if we could um, give up the things of the world that would tempt us to uh, take us from God, claim our love, claim our allegiance, claim our loyalty in the place of Christ, uh, and be faithful to our Lord. This is what our Lord is asking of us now, certainly at this juncture in human history, uh, to become much more serious in our faith we see that our Lord was, as Our Lady was told in the temple, to be a sign of contradiction. And so it is. So it is to this very day, right, a sign of contradiction for those who reject the incarnation of the Son of God. As I mentioned on Sunday, we have the rejection uh, that our Lord met with from the Jews, and we have today the rejection he meets with and so many people, typified by Islam as, as a great movement against the incarnation of the Son of God. It all goes back, as I mentioned in the sermon, to two ancient heresies, uh, like two serpents who've crawled back out of the holes, their holes in the ground, where they were driven by the light of faith, true faith. And these two heresies are Arianism, the denial of the real divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and um, which we see now uh, throughout the world, a, a real uh, militant denial of the divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, trying to relegate him to the level of a mere prophet, of a mere man, no more than that, 
even perhaps the best of men, but no more. And then the desire, having uh, dethroned our Lord here on, on earth uh, from his kingship, to install another king, and that other king will be the work of the other heresy, Gnosticism, proclaiming mankind as God, and mankind as his own savior. And of course, that will set mankind up to receive this apotheosis of humanity who will present himself as the, the prime specimen of human nature, and that is the Antichrist. And uh, this is, this is the, the, well, I mentioned during the sermon, this is the most egregious example of identity theft in the history of mankind, this, this Antichrist here claiming the allegiance of mankind. There'll be very few people, the elect, who will not be deceived by him. And what does this mean for us in the practical order? It means that we have to be very, very strong in our faith. We have to re re renew our faith in the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to appreciate more and more the significance of the incarnation. We have to appreciate the birth of our Lord and realize that what we're going through now is nothing unusual in the sense that all of our Catholic ancestors had to face hardship, and in many cases, much more severe hardship than we have ever known. Um, St. Paul said that anyone who would live in a godly fashion in this world must suffer persecution. And I would say that I have not suffered anything that even begins to savor persecution. I don't know about the rest of us here, but I have not even begun uh, to fight in that regard. Um, all in God's time, but I would pray to be uh, willing and able to stand up for my faith at that time. If I'm a coward or, or um, uh, weak in my faith now because I want to fly under the radar and be accepted, uh, whether by, it be by the Novus Ordo, by, you know, finding their approval, um, or by the people of the world at large with their abortions and their fornications and their adulteries. If I want to fly under the radar and, and not oppose these things, I am not going to be able to stand the withering blast of the Antichrist when he comes. I'm not going to be able to stand up when the persecution comes. There was a generation of Christians who had uh, come up through the ranks for an entire generation, as they say, about 40 years from the end of one persecution to the beginning of another, about 30, 33, 35 years. And when the persecution of Datius hit in 249 BC, uh, 249 AD, excuse me, uh, many of them fell away from the faith because they'd never been battle hardened by uh, deprivation, by, by, by suffering, by uh, uh, their faith being tested. Um, and so many of them were weak, and they were not ready for, for the battle. And we have to get ourselves ready for that battle. You know, you talk about uh, the beginning of the program today, you talked about uh, where, where we find it gets to the point where we need to engage. Uh, well, and I mentioned that the battle really has to do with matter of faith and hope and charity. And what Our Lady said at Fatima, we have to begin to toughen ourselves up for the spiritual battle ahead. And, uh, you know, when we celebrate our Lord and, and Savior at his birth, 
this Christmas, we should bear that in mind. The church wants us to look forward also to, uh, there will be, there are very few who will welcome him here when he returns to earth to judge. But uh, if we are here, we want to be among those who will welcome him. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and uh, Merry Christmas to you. Well, blessed Christmas to you, Tom, and to all of our audience out there. God bless you all. And thank you for your support. It's much appreciated and much needed. Yes. We wish you a blessed coming year. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.